it's a remarkable story about a remarkable feat of humanity. And this was a, a bit of a thank you from me to the Filipino people. Welcome to the Sun Also Rises radio show on KPCG-FM. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. And the voice you heard a moment ago there was the writer and director Matthew Rosen. He spoke to The Sun Also Rises for this episode, and the remarkable story that he was talking about begins in 1938. By that time, Adolf Hitler had been the head of Germany for about five years, and he and his Nazi state were casting dark shadows, not just over Germany, but over much of Europe, especially for Jewish people. Hitler had revoked more and more rights for Jews and had kicked them out of Germany's schools and excluded them from many professions. Anti-Semitic persecution was becoming systemic. Jewish homes were being invaded, their businesses were being smashed up, their synagogues burned to the ground. Daily life was becoming a nightmare for the Jewish people, and rumors were beginning to circulate that Hitler had a final plan in mind for them that was profoundly evil. So many Jews realized that their best hope was to escape the country, and they started trying to relocate to other nations where they hoped to start over, somewhere safer for their families. But the trouble was that other countries, including even the United States, were not really willing to ease their immigration restrictions in order to help the Jews. So the situation was looking darker and darker. But in 1938, half a world away from Germany, in Manila, the capital of the Philippines, news about these dark rumors came up during a game of poker. Manuel Quezon and a few of his friends, which were cigar manufacturers, the Frieders, and Dwight Eisenhower, and Paul McNutt, who was the American governor of the Philippines, they were all friends. They all used to play poker together. Manuel Quezon was president of the Philippines. Dwight Eisenhower was his military advisor. And McNutt, as Mr. Rosen said there, was a governor. He was the American high commissioner. And the Frieders that he mentioned were brothers, Alex and Herbert Frieder. They were Jewish Americans living in the Philippines to manage a cigar factory that they had opened there. And the Frieders were also part of an organization that had been receiving some early reports about Hitler's diabolical plans. The Frieder brothers were also the head of the Jewish Refugee Committee. And they got a secret telegram sent to them from Austria, from the Chinese ambassador there, saying that he had heard rumors that the Jews were going to be rounded up and put into death camps. So the Frieders decided to bring this troubling report up during one of their poker games with Mr. Kazan and the others. And they didn't know what to expect, but it was good news. Together, they agreed that they had to, in some way, save as many of these Jews as they possibly could. President Manuel Quezon knew that the Philippines had a storied history of welcoming refugees. He was proud of that history, and he wanted to see it continue. 
So he decided to do all he could to help the European Jews escape Hitler's evil. He wanted to make his nation one of the few countries that would publicly give safe haven to them. But it was clear from the start that it would be extraordinarily difficult. The main obstacles being that they were in Germany, he was in the Philippines. There wasn't much communication in those days. Other than telegrams, it took time for this information to get from one place to another. Uh, but he had to secure uh, exit permits from the Germans to get them out of the camps or out of the ghettos. Hitler apparently reasoned, at least at this time in the late 1930s, that paper for exit visas was cheaper than Zyklon B. So many Jews were able to secure exit permits. But then Kazan also needed to issue entry permits for these people so that they could come into the Philippines. But being president of the country didn't mean that he had the power to do this because the Philippines at this time was under the control of another country and subject to its immigration laws. He had to get entry permits from America because at the time the Philippines was an American colony and uh, there was a very limited amount of uh, immigration visas available. So when Quezon asked for extra visas, there was the legal issue that uh, you just weren't allowed that many visas. Only 220 visas were allowed to be issued to the Philippines, and he wanted 10,000. Ensuing were months of difficult work, made more difficult by the climate in the U.S. at the time. Well, we have to remember what time this was. This was 1938, when uh, segregation was rampant and uh, bigotry was rampant, and both Jews and blacks were considered as second-class citizens. Those kinds of sentiments certainly weren't universal in the U.S., but there were problems, even among political leaders. So Eisenhower, at President Quezon's behest, did what he could to persuade the American leadership to let Quezon allow the Jews in. had their own things that they had to do and because Eisenhower was close to MacArthur and because he had control over the military, he was in the Philippines training the Philippine military, he would use that influence to try and convince the American Senate that the Philippines had the right to do whatever their president wanted them to do. And one of the ways he did this was by scaring Congress into thinking that the Philippine scouts, who were their largest military force in Asia, would put their guns down if Quezon was not allowed to act like a president. So the U.S. had motivation to ease up on its restrictions, and Eisenhower and McNutt both kept laboring to overcome lingering U.S. objections to Quezon's plan. And they were instrumental in the efforts. And then the Frieder brothers, not just Alex and Herbert, but also their other three brothers, Morris, Philip, and Henry, went into overdrive raising funds to help the Jewish refugees. There was a requirement stating that no immigrant could become a public charge or a burden on the Philippine economy. 
So if one of the Jewish refugees had no money and no job, that would mean no entry into the Philippines. So that's why the fundraising efforts of the Frieder brothers were so vital to the whole operation. The question of which European Jews to admit was an agonizing one for everyone involved because they knew that they couldn't take everyone. They ended up placing a series of ads in German newspapers advertising specific jobs that they wanted to fill in the Philippines. Physicians, nurses, barbers, mechanics, dressmakers, of course, cigar and tobacco experts to work with the freeders, and many more positions like that. And then Mr. Quezon and those helping him waited on the Jews in Europe to see the ads and apply for the jobs. So the whole process was arduous. It was heartbreaking to deny so many applications. And there were very many people involved that just played a vital role in all of these efforts. But it was really President Quezon himself who was the key player here and the primary hero of this story. He risked his political career, and he said, despite the fact that the Philippines was facing its own serious struggles, he said that the struggle of Europe's Jews was more important and more pressing. And he came to see it as a moral obligation to help them at all costs. He took on critics in his own government who had bought into the fascist propaganda about Jews. He silenced them and made them feel ashamed of their bigotry. I've got a quote here from Mr. Kazon's daughter, Zenaida Kazon Avancenya. She said, quote, I know that Dad had the moral courage to do it because he believed in the sanctity of human life. At one point, Mr. Kazon said he wanted to open up the island of Mindanao to as many Jews as wanted to come. They could start a farming community there. And Philip Frieder said, Kazon even mentioned during one meeting that he would be happy if a million Jewish people arrived. Kazon later revised that goal down to a more realistic number of 10,000 European Jews that he hoped to welcome to the Philippines. Kazan, Eisenhower, McNutt, and the Frieder brothers kept on working to clinch this Mindanao deal. They lobbied politicians, both in the Philippines and in the U.S., they conducted land surveys, and on November 21st of 1941, they scored a major victory. The final contract for the purchase of a large chunk of land in Mindanao was signed. It looked like the way was opened for thousands and thousands of European Jews to get free of the Nazis and to come to the Philippines. But then the circumstances and the whole dynamic suddenly changed. December 7, 1941, a day of infamy. Even as Japanese diplomats were conferring with Secretary of State Hull on peace measures, Nipponese planes were swooping down on Pearl Harbor. This pictorial record includes both U.S. films and pictures made by the enemy as they dropped their load of death on the naval base, on Wheeler Field, on civilian homes and schools. A hundred Japanese planes and a number of midget submarines took part in the attack. In an hour and five minutes, the battleship Arizona was completely destroyed and four others severely damaged. Three other battleships and three cruisers suffered lesser damage. Nearly 200 planes were destroyed. 
In that Sunday morning inferno, the Pacific fleet appeared to be completely immobilized by the sneak attack. Nearly 3,000 casualties added to the catastrophe. Within hours, the United States declared war. Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in the U.S. came on the morning of December 7th, 1941, just two weeks after that deal for the Jewish land in Mindanao had been signed. And then just 10 hours after the Pearl Harbor attack that had taken out so many American aircraft, the Japanese invaded the Philippines. America's Asiatic fleet in the Philippines ended up withdrawing to Java. So the Japanese occupied the Philippines before President Quezon had been able to set up the Jewish community in Mindanao and before he had been able to reach his goal of saving 10,000 of their lives. So Quezon was not able to save as many as he had hoped, but he and the others helping the cause were still able to throw a lifeline to an extraordinary number of them. Uh, the official figure was 1,200 that were uh, picked out from Germany, put on a boat, uh, shipped to the Philippines. But there were 25 Jews that he saved previously from Shanghai that were able to get out from uh, Germany and got stopped in Shanghai. But when the Japanese invaded, they had to get out. So there was 25 from there. And there was another 100 that found their way to the Philippines by themselves, uh, but uh, Quezon put them up in the Jewish village if they were able to get here. So all in all, it was round about 1,300, 1,225 official names. Thirteen hundred people, people who otherwise almost certainly would have been rounded up by Nazis, sent to deplorable concentration camps and murdered, either slowly with starvation and backbreaking labor or quickly in the gas chambers. Thirteen hundred people were plucked out of that fire by President Manuel Quezon. And once they arrived in the Philippines, they were free to live on land that Quezon personally donated to the cause from his own estate. He gave land to help settle them after they had arrived, and a community house was built there that they named Marikina Hall. And these Jewish refugees ended up forming a thriving community in the Philippines and a community that grew. In 2017, the Israeli embassy estimated that the descendants of those refugees that Quezon threw a lifeline to now number about 8,000. 8,000 people. Manuel Quezon is sometimes compared to Oscar Schindler by those who know this story of Quezon's courageous outreach. But one curious aspect of Quezon's story, unlike that of Schindler, is that up until very recently, not many people were aware of it. And that's why Matthew Rosen wanted to research into this story and to bring it to the big screen where people around the world, and especially people of the Philippines, could learn about it. That's really the reason why I wanted to make this film. Because it wasn't just that 
this amazing feat happened that we didn't know about outside the country. What really surprised me was that how few Filipinos knew the story. I mean, they knew that Manuel Quezon was a great president, but this story somehow had been lost behind everything else that he'd done. Why? I really do not, I do not know why. Mr. Rosen said that even he may have never known this story had it not been for a certain piece of Jewish culture that traveled from Europe to the Philippines along with the Jews that Quezon saved. It started uh, with my wife, who is a Filipina, and uh, we were in England. That's where Mr. Rosen's from. He's a British national, but he has lived in the Philippines for more than 30 years. And on the occasion that he's describing, he and his wife, Lori Rosen, were visiting England. And since Mr. Rosen is Jewish, they went to a Jewish event of some kind. We went to a, a wedding or a mitzvah, I can't remember which, and uh, it just so happened that we started singing Chava Nagila, and she sang along with us. So I, I was surprised. How did she know Chava Nagila? So I asked her, and apparently she used to sing it in the street as a child with other Filipinos. And they thought it was a dialect, a Filipino dialect that they didn't know. And I explained to her it's Hebrew, and she couldn't believe it. Mr. and Mrs. Rosen were both stunned that she had learned a Hebrew-language Israeli folk song as a child in the Philippines, just by playing in the streets with other children. So they started to investigate. When we got back to the Philippines, I went to the synagogue and asked if they knew why my wife knows Havana Gila and why Filipinos would sing it in the street. And in the synagogue in, in the Philippines, in Makati, they have a small room at the back, which is like a museum uh, of the history of Jews in the Philippines. And there they had this story about how President Quezon brought over nearly 1,300 Jews, and they stayed here in his land for the duration of the war, and many stayed for many years after. And that's how Kavanagila, from their children, got passed down to the street, and it became just a song that they would sing in the streets. So it was some really mysterious and beautiful circumstances that first put this story on the Rosen's radar. And they were able to learn a little bit about it from the synagogue's museum room. And then from there, they knew that this was some history that they really needed to dig more deeply into. So they devoted months and months to researching it and writing it up. And then eventually they turned it into a beautiful new movie. It's called Kazon's Game. They really accomplished quite a lot in this movie because even though it's about one of the darkest chapters in mankind's history, it highlights those who refused to succumb to that darkness and who even confronted it. It's a movie about the Holocaust and it's about the winds of war, but I didn't want the movie 
to be a depressing movie. It's not a dark movie. It's really an uplifting movie. Uh, I would say it's not in the vein of Schindler's List if, uh, when you go and see it. It's more in the vein of Casablanca. It has a very serious theme, uh, but it, is, it has music, it has humor, it has romance. What Kazon did was in that real time of real darkness during the war, when everybody was saying, we've got our own problems, we don't have to worry about anybody else, where so many lives have been lost, that a few more Jewish lives is not important. He showed that every life was important and that he could do this great feat of humanity uh, and humanitarianism and put so much at risk for himself and his friends uh, because it was the right thing to do. And I think as we get further away from the war, we forget. Mr. Rosen also said this story underscores general traits that he has noticed from living among the people of the Philippines. And he said he wanted to make this movie to help them understand and take pride in this inspiring chapter of their history. It is part of the Filipino culture. Uh, another reason I wanted to make this was it was a, it's a remarkable story about a remarkable feat of humanity. And this was a, a bit of a thank you from me to the Filipino people, because I've lived here for 30 years. And uh, I'm a Jew, and I, drew up, I, I grew up in England in the 60s and 70s. You know, I have been a victim of bigotry and anti-Semitism. I, I used to ask my dad about it, and he would say, oh, well, England is one of the safest places in Europe for a Jew to live, but, you know, you're a Jew, so live with it. And I just thought it was part of the human condition. When I arrived in the Philippines, I realized that it is not, it's really culture, because the Filipino seems to be immune to any kind of bigotry or hatred or uh, xenophobia against anyone that is not a Filipino. And I really do appreciate it. And I felt telling this story will help explain that to the rest of the world. And the data backs that up. A survey conducted by the Anti-Defamation League a couple of years back shows that the Philippines is the second least anti-Semitic country on the globe. So those kinds of hateful sentiments are virtually non-existent among their population. So that's remarkable. And to this day, the Philippines maintains an exceptional policy aimed at helping those in need. The, the, one, the one other thing which is interesting, uh, which unfortunately I couldn't put into the movie, uh, was after the war, the Philippines made law what Quezon did, that he would keep an open-door policy to anybody who needed a place to go and was running from bigotry and, uh, and persecution. And that was put into law, and that law still exists today. And the Philippines does open its doors to any um, refugees that require asylum. And consequently, the Philippines is extremely cosmopolitan. This extraordinary story of Kazan and the others who helped him, standing up to the forces of evil 
and even challenging the norms of the time and risking so much to do it gives each of us, I think, quite a lot to think about. It calls to mind what the Apostle Peter said, as recorded in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the presenter of the Key of David program here on KPCG, and he's also an author. One of his books, called How to Be an Overcomer, is basically a detailed manual about how to obey God rather than men, how to resist societal and other kinds of pressure, and as the title says, how to be an overcomer. If you go to thetrumpet.com and click on the literature tab, you can order an entirely free copy of this potentially life-changing book. And we'll also include a link to it in our show notes on SoundCloud. And we'll have some links there also so that you can find out more about the Rosen's powerful movie, Kazon's Game. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Sun Also Rises. Many thanks to Mr. Rosen for sharing his time with us for this episode. Thanks also to Gerard Marquez for providing much of the music, including the National Anthem of the Philippines. And a special thank you to Janice Davidson for her excellent work in bringing this story to the attention of The Sun Also Rises, and also for helping to research and coordinate this episode. And instead of leaving you with a quote, as we normally do to close each show, we'll end this one with the theme song from Kazon's Game. It's called Kazon's Theme, written by James George Hargreaves, and is performed here very beautifully by a rising star of the Jewish music tradition, Shulem Limmer. Yo!
forget.